Hello and welcome to Built to Play, Game Technology for Arts Inclined. I'm Armin Igbali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. The light of the universe has burned out, and the New Year's baby that lives beneath Neo Tokyo has risen from its slumber to herald the new dawn, meaning we have finally killed 2015. But not before we had the chance to play a few games and spend six straight months mocking Konami. But we've done this all before the last part of a show, so we're done with talking about video games. Let's bring on our guests for this year in review. Uh, first up, we have Jonathan Orr of the CBC. Hello. Uh, we also have uh, Al Donato of the Hand-Eye Society. What up? And we have Kadeem. Kadeem Dunn? Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Me, yeah. Of no association. Also of the Hand-Eye Society. Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. In, Glad to be here. Now we're going to start off with you, John. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, out of all fear. and uh, But the, uh, the first thing on our list is, hey, so who here in this room has played Mario Maker? Super Mario Maker. I have not. Yeah. Oh, I have not. You do so didn't we play Mario Paint or Mario Maker on the weekend? Didn't we? Um, Mario Paint. Oh, Mario Paint. Okay. Yeah, the sound one. Mario Maker is a Wii U one. Oh, Mario okay. Paint. Mario Paint. Yeah, Mario Paint and Mario Maker are the same game. It's like yeah. Mario Paint is the color a dinosaur version of Mario Maker's like Mona Lisa. It's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So um, that makes at least almost everyone in this room has You've played it on microphone. I have played so. it on microphone. I've, I've for for an affidavit, I have played it. Um, John, you, uh, you wrote a article on uh, kind of the anniversary, the 30th anniversary mm-hmm. of Mario. Um, now, before we get into this, I do want to point out that for anyone listening, that we have worked together before at the yes. the Canadian Broadcasting Company. We are partners in crime on the <laughs> trending <laughs> social media team. Yeah. Yeah. Closure statements. <laughs> yeah. Um, so okay, how has Mario? Um, leading up into Super Mario Bros, Super Mario uh, Maker, mm-hmm. has it changed over the last 30 years? Uh, shoot. Well, I mean, in some ways it's changed significantly, like just the Mario franchise, right? Uh, the original Super Mario Brothers was the blueprint of platforming, and it was so pure in its experience. Like, it was eight whole worlds of just plain uh, setting the bar for platforming, and ever since then Mario's kind of gone into all these different directions. Like, even in the main three series, right, you have Mario Brothers 1, then Mario Brothers 2, which either is the Nightmare of Lost Levels or, you know, that the other game that wasn't a Mario game at all, and then it went back to the original. So, or the original for Super Mario Brothers 3, the original idea of the game. So, it's been in a lot of different places. Uh, so, the thing about Super Mario Maker is that it goes somewhere that, like, not necessarily Nintendo, not, not even Mario, but even Nintendo has never really gone before. Like it's it's a it's a creator or maker centered game where people create their own stages and share their own stages and and they let their creativity run wild, uh, which is kind of a back of the box kind of line. But yeah, it's 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 super strange for a Nintendo pro- uh, product, right? Um, so I mean, back to your original question, like Mar- Mario, it's it's kind of crazy though. So we're we're right at the cusp of the new Star Wars uh, movie launching. And so, you know, topical plug. Yeah. <laughs> Mario and Super Mario, for a lot of us, it's 30 years now. It's For some of us, depending on, you know, where, which, which screen you focus on, it is our Star Wars. We grew up with the character. And it's kind of cool seeing it seeing it, and, you know, him, the character, evolve over the last few years. And to see it kind of culminate in Super Mario Maker is cool because at this point it's like here's three decades of games and history and design um, and culture even. Now they kind of let they unleash their tools and let people, you know, put it together on uh, by their own, on their own, and to see what happens when you just let the fans create things. And it's kind of insane what happens when you you know dive into the creators and the into the levels. It's 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 quite incredible. 
So before we get into the specific level stuff, and this is something yeah. I kind of want to pose to the room because I feel like I think I think I'm coming from a similar place of you are where I have a really strong connection to Mario. Yeah. But something I found out relatively recently, as I think when Armin and I reviewed Mario Maker on the show, is that he doesn't actually have a, a really strong Mario God. background. I am calling yeah. you out right here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering, do you, I, and I guess this is sort of for everybody. Like I wonder, like where does everybody come from? Like is Mario this hyper strong connection for everybody? Can I? Can I? Like I, yeah, I, I need please. to make a confession. Like I. I reviewed the game. Um, I got media access to it, which is kind of insane. Um, but like, I was more of a Sonic guy. I had a lot of courage to admit. I had I had I had a Sega Genesis when I was a kid, so I played yeah. Sonic too, and my and my memories were, you know, glued to Sonic more than they were to Mario. Uh, my first like I think the first Mario game that I really dove into was actually Super Mario RPG, mm. which is probably a strange entry point. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, like if you if you are growing up with games and you if you are close to games like throughout your life, as I guess everyone in this room has been, um, we understand how important Mario is, and yeah. we have played it at some point, or most of the main games at some point throughout our lives, and like we un like we can totally uh, recognize like the brilliance of the design there. Um, and the fact that it's just a lot of fun and like at a very primal level, I think, for as far as games are concerned, like Super Mario 3D Worlds that came out last year, I suppose. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's bloody fantastic. Yeah. Um, and it's like, no, Nintendo did not pay me to say that. It's, <laughs> it's just a pure classic gaming experience, and that's just something totally awesome that Sonic has not done in the last ten years. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, Shout out. I'm sad yeah. to say. And I think undeniably, um, yeah, just like what you're saying is that like. Uh, it's just a piece of design that, um, you know, you can look at that first frame, mm -hmm. um, and it has it has all of the tools that are in the game, all of the parts that are in the game, taught to you in that first frame, where you hit a Goomba, where you open a, you know, you open the box where you get the mushroom, and uh, just the genius of the design of how of how it's laid out from that level, um, you know, screen by screen and level by level with the shortcuts and um, you know skipping levels and the and uh, secrets and all of that. It's um, you know more than a blueprint for platformers like almost platformers try to, to to reach that every every iteration that they come out with and it still seems like you know they can't really get that get that magic that original magic that was there it's like you know mm -hmm. time every is that game way. Yeah. every yeah. every game still tries hard to be as good as one one yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. exactly exactly right yeah, that's yeah. a flawless level mm -hmm. and you can't really get better than that yeah for me for mario uh mario like it was how you made friends growing up like mm. i had the opposite experience of you um okay yeah i basically that was how you made friends uh i think for a lot of like low-income kids especially like you would mm. all go to each other's house you'd play some mario party or mario kart and that was how you'd be introduced into the world of video games mm. um at the game at the hand eye society we do video game workshops with kids yeah. once a week um and they are like repeatedly week after week on sunday they scream mario's name they yeah. draw him in their art they go to um sketch they go to sketch they draw like levels like him they mm -hmm. just try to emulate him as much as possible because he's just continued to be for the next generation such an important uh, person and yeah. for us it's like for for some of us especially who are embedded in games like mm -hmm. um super mario is our darth vader or our yeah. mickey mouse or whoever you want to put yeah. that up to right, right like up there in the core in the dna for sure yeah like, yeah um, absolutely there's this, this, there's this interesting part where like when, when i when i when i first started playing mario maker it was so interesting because almost every like 2d level design game that has come out like uh super meat boy had a little bit of this in the in the uh like PC 
PC version, uh, Little Big Planet had this. Everybody always tries to create recreate one one yeah. with whatever tools they have, and it's just like there's this language, this vocabulary that like we are expression of like what do we do with a platform? Well, you make one one because that's the basic of it. Yeah. I think the sense and is if you can pull off a one one like in your game, that means your game has good fundamentals. Yeah, like yeah. you've designed, you have smart game design, and then like now it's just like you have a game. We have a game now where it's like well you can't make one one because this is the game. You yeah. this is how to make one one the video game to yeah. some yeah. extent. Mm -hmm. I mean that's where everyone who plays it starts, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. So it's it's just so interesting that like that 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 level of expression has been taken to that separate stage where it's like this is the step beyond the standard like two D build a level game. This mm -hmm. is something where it's like this is how you actually build a level. Yeah. And like if we want to talk about the levels, like yeah. Mario Maker is fantastic um, for especially younger uh, younger players who might not be you know who might not have played games for twenty five years or whatever. Um, the tools are incredibly uh, easy to work with mm. for, for the most part. Like they they. Some people have complained that they start you off with almost nothing, like the very few um, main tools. But it's a pretty good tool to help introduce to others how to make it, like how to make a level, like incrementally. They don't, they don't give you everything all at once because when you get like fifty tools at once, it can be overwhelming. So, right. like it's, I mean, you know, and they give you everything that yeah. you need to make one one. Yeah, so yeah, that's all exactly. That matters, right? Yeah, like you, once you can beginning. get that down, then they let you move on. I would have been totally overwhelmed if I had. Um, like bricks and all the, and all the power ups and like all the Bowsers and all the modifiers at the very beginning, I wouldn't know where to start. Well, I think they would. I think what would happen is that people would make really terrible levels. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like you would just sort of throw let's be honest, they did for well, yes, and but, and do for a long time. Yeah. So. Well, that's part of the fun, though. Yeah. Is you know the ability to do that. Make but, it well. I feel like, and I guess sort of talking specific levels and in this hand, like, does anybody here like who who's gotten a chance to play with the game or even see just stuff? Because a, a lot of a big part of that game is sort of people making videos and streaming, but just really specific, like interesting, memorable levels. I know that we yeah. were talking about uh, back uh, like last week when we were talking about Mario Maker us and our and our roommate we were chatting about like levels that tell stories. Or I, I recently saw Polygon did a video with uh, Christine Love where she essentially made a. Like the the rhyme of the ancient plumber with, <laughs> yeah. uh, with Mario Maker. <laughs> if anybody has any like specific levels that come to mind, it, it's fantastic. I was just, I was just playing um, through the challenges uh, where they so there's the hundred Mario for any player anyone who listening who hasn't really played the game. There's a version where you can play through just a random assortment of levels created by by other users. Um, the coolest thing I think I think is that there are a bunch of levels that people have made that are completely like outside the realm of what Nintendo or anyone else would think of as a Mario game. So there is this level um, that takes use that makes use of the functionality of the amiibo. So you know when mm. you scan in the figures into your into your game, um, you can th then unlock a mushroom that changes you into that character. Um, but oh. he turned it into a quiz uh, game. This level was a quiz. So. You would you would walk through a section of like music blocks, and there's like a melody time. So they so the guy loaded certain musical tones, and it would play like a two second ditty, and you have to choose then out of like two or three or more um, mushrooms uh, with characters. Which where char did that theme yeah. come from? Wow. Um, so there would That's be like, cool. do, 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 and then you have to say, oh, then one of them is a shy guy. That yeah. was from Super Mario Brothers too. And it, and then you know, if you choose that character, then you go, you either go down a pit to the next level, or right. you like, you know, you, you die and have to try again. Yeah. And it's like I never thought that could ever be built in those in those yeah. tools, but and, like it tottotally did, and it worked, and it was cool. Yeah, and that like, the, that's the awesome thing about um, yeah. user generated content because mm -hmm. it's like way you know. Even through how they're structuring the levels and everything, they're teaching players how to, you know, w what is good level design and all that. And um, mm -hmm. when they can apply it, 
you know, you see all these all these manifestations that would never be like you're saying, never be uh, made by a core Nintendo team or anything because they don't have the thinking, right? So it's the beauty of yeah. of you know, uh, universalizing game design and um, the the tools to do that. So I think that's really cool. Like I haven't really played it that much myself or seen it, um, but that's awesome that it's like that. Same thing with Little Big Planet, you know, yeah, that yeah. went through. Although I think I think um, even though like certainly Mario Maker took cues from that, or like, you know Little Big Planet was here for a while, yeah. Um, making it a level creator with Mario, like there's a certain shared language that yeah, I think many sure. of us have. Um, like even if you've never played a Mario game, sorry, sorry. Like if you if you ha- if I, I've never played Little Big Planet, I wouldn't yeah. necessarily know where to start. But I have played Mario games, yeah. and I know what you know those I- items are. So I have at least a beginner's idea or an in- a first idea what to do with them, and that's a good. Block. Right. You, and, you've had fun with Mario before, yeah. and you have an idea of what to create that is fun with Mario yeah. Maker. And most people even have a passing um, familiarity of what one or two items might be. Right. And that's yeah. a good start. Yeah. Absolutely. So one of the things you looked at with that article is that you talked to a bunch of writers and you talked to mm-hmm. a few academics. Um, what is the, the take at large from this game? And we've had a bit of a discussion in this room of what Mario Maker is, but how does that game then fit into both kind of a historical perspective and um, an academic perspective? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not sure if I'd say much as far as historical. Uh, like, I don't know what, what like if we'll look back on it 20 years from now as more any more than than a curiosity. It is fascinating. Like now, I mean, it's, it's cool that it's the first time Nintendo's really done something like this. Uh, like historically, that's kind of a heavy word for it. Uh, at, the, at the moment, I can just say it's a real, it's a, it's a good game and it's a cool game that. It's one of Nintendo's coolest games this year, um, but beyond that, I couldn't tell you what it, what it would look like. Um, academically, it's great because I spoke to uh, Ben Rivers, who you know has teaches a game design class, and it's a fantastic way to teach um, teaches students how to make games. If they're interested in making games, then here is an amazing tool that probably anyone who wants to take that class does not need a huge lesson on how to use. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great first tool. Like, hey, you want to make games? Start with this. See how it feels. Um, if you absolutely hate it, maybe that's not the best course, or maybe you need to find a different kind of way to make games. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a very cool beginner's tool for for a class like that. Um, I, I imagine he will take his students, you know, beyond making Mario levels, obviously. Uh, but it's 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 quite a cool thing to do uh, to have and to do and to work with. So. Yeah. So I think speaking of talking about designing games and game literacy, I guess, we should probably open up the floor for uh, the Game Curious stuff. So, um, just before we get into a lot of hand-eye and uh, Game Curious stuff, um, Al, uh, Daniel, I believe you went to the same university, as did I. Oh, did we? I'm not sure. You're going to have to refresh. What is that? I don't know. Where are we, actually? I don't know. (laughs) I've never um, heard of any universities. <laughs> this room is in international waters. Just, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the humming you hear is just foghorns. The, um, the script says the here, you two are anime <laughs> friends, I believe. Yes. Why would you bring this <laughs> up? Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we literally had like a 10-minute conversation, everyone outside about anime, supernatural, <laughs> TV uh, shows, just... Jessica Jones. Okay, for any fans who might be wondering, there is not a supernatural anime coming out. There uh, actually is. No, there is. What? There's oh a supernatural God. anime. Oh, of course. They're so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. That's like a review in one sentence. Yeah. Uh, I wrote that because originally Armin had written that uh, yeah. Al and I were in the same year of university, and that's not true. Oh, no. But, but being anime friends is true. Um, but with that out of the way... <laughs> Um, so just just to kind of get started here, uh, what's the Hand Eye Society again? Um, we're a video game literacy organization. 
Um, basically, the game Curious program that runs out of the Handai Society aims to teach workshops to those who don't like typically identify as gamers. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, at in Toronto Reference Library, teaching people from all sorts of backgrounds, people just kind of walked into the library. Um, and then this year, we've started going into different. Uh, I guess the best place, like community housing yeah, places. Yeah, partnerships with uh, Art yeah. Starts. Um, Big ups to them. Yeah, and uh, so our first one was at um, Glendower yeah. um, in Scarborough, and then now we're in the Villaways uh, <laughs> every Sunday. Every Sunday, every four Sunday. to six. So the, the program works that we have, it's it's split into two parts. Um, we do six play sessions and then six make sessions. So then, um, you know, participants get the chance to kind of uh, experiment, experiment on both sides. Um, uh, and learn, you know, uh, about games uh, through playing them as well as trying to make them and seeing what goes into uh, the whole process and, you know, uh, breaking them down like that as well. Mm-hmm. The programming, little programming as well. Yeah, we tend to show them uh, local indie games. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Benjamin Rivers, we, we showed Snow there. Yeah. Um, but we also, uh, we do tend to show a lot of like Minecraft sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, Mario, I swear <laughs> to God, I've seen Mario yeah. every week. Yeah, it's all the... <laughs> So the Sonic. Sonic. Who's that one kid? Yeah, Is it Devon or Javon? Javon. Devon or Javon? And Elijah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. We're just like... <laughs> and Spider-Man. Like, such an inside conversation. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so it's good. It's it's yeah. really good that um, I think uh, we get to get to the populations like, you know, right up um, with them every week and uh, see see what, uh, what our actions kind of uh, manifest mm-hmm. uh, in these kids every week and especially that they get to end off and culminate in making something mm-hmm. um, which is really awesome to see you know their understanding of the different themes and, and uh, why people make games and, and what people get out of it uh, to see them reciprocated and understand it I think is really cool mm-hmm. so I mean for, for each of you guys what is sort of what, what do you guys do kind of like because we've talked a lot about what Game Curious is and what the hand eye is what, what, what do you guys sort of like in a moment to moment thing what, what are you guys doing there we yell at kids and try not to give them Nest tea, yeah. <laughs> can. Um, um, we yeah. um, so we curate the games, but we also give presentations talking about game design, talking about characters, mm-hmm. um, just talking about like kind of figuring out where they're from. Like we make friends with the kids um, mm-hmm. because it's important that game makers and game players come from all sorts of backgrounds. We really believe yeah. that. Um, mm-hmm. Like a lot of the kids there are like racialized a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and personally, I came from the same area that we are right now, which is Villaways in North York. Um, and you don't get to play a lot of games. And a lot of them have experiences playing free games or yeah. watching Let's Plays because mm-hmm. that's the only avenue they have to be introduced into this media, which sucks. So um, <laughs> we're trying to change that. Be a console or PC game. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. yeah. None of them. I don't, I don't think any of them own consoles. Yeah, very few. Of them. Yeah. One of them owns a gaming PC, but oh my god, older. that yeah. kid! That kid who <laughs> I actually went to the same school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. Small world, small world. Yeah. It's easy to take it for granted because, like, if you want to get into this hobby, there's usually like a five hundred dollar entry fee. Oh god. Right. Yeah. yeah. At least, right? Yeah. At least. And it shouldn't be because a lot of stories and narratives are just lying underneath the mainstream, you know. And we need yeah. to reach out and tap out to like marginalized peoples and find out what they're what they've got going on. Yeah, and especially just um. You know, I'm of the opinion not to get into it really, but like yeah. in a lot of ways, the game industry has stagnated in terms of ideas and where it's going, the direction mm-hmm. of um, mm-hmm. inequality. And I think um, that's in large part due to the fact that it's not coming from, from everyone, right? And um, typical game makers and game consumers, or at least the perception of it, is is a, is a very small uh, group that um, 
I don't think he's really looking to cater to everyone, and I think that's an issue. So I think bringing in more voices and um, you know diversity is just only is only going to help the whole industry at the end of the day, right? Um, creatively, exactly. creatively, creatively. Sorry, uh, you, you'll get a lot out of it too. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, um, foster different creations. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly, and just just for something new, right? Yeah. Just for something new. Yeah. So. Oh, we we first I kind of met you when you were part of the Game Curious program, if I'm not mistaken. Like you were, I oh, yeah. I met you at of an event run by Sagan Yee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my there. God, Sagan Yee. Sagan. Oh my God. Sagan. First, the game this this girl made. Like you throw knives at a wall because you're, like, yeah. you're cheating on your. Like I don't even know how to explain her games. They're like <laughs> incredible. To uh, build a play fans, you can go back to listen to the episode where Sagan <laughs> described her game. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we met because I actually was a participant um, in the very first Game Curious running out of Academy of the Impossible back in 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. I don't know how time works. Um, I, yeah, and I, it's because I felt really alienated by the gaming community. I really wanted to uh, reach out and find out, hey, do people actually give a shit about indie games? Um, are there people like me out there? And there were. And Kadeem, were you were you yeah. also part of Game Curious? I was... I I came in uh, like last, so I came back from Ottawa last September, I yeah. think it was, and uh, so I just tried to like sign up and like do whatever I could. And I remember Game Curious was running at um, yeah, library library at that time, so I went yeah. to a few, uh, like maybe three, kind of like short of halfway through. I'm just trying to remember where we first met, and it's blur. I think we we yeah. met like at the library, but we really got to know each other at. The- at- a pop-up arcade, yeah. which um, if you contact the Hanai Society, we do pop-up arcades all across the city. Yeah. <laughs> let us know. Let us know. Throwing some plugs. Shameless promotion time. Yeah. I think we met through, um, we did a pop-up arcade and it was like a 14-hour day. Yeah. Kids were playing. Kids have such dedication. All right. Once yeah. they find a game they love, they will... N- you can no, pry the controller out of their cold, dead hands, all right? Yeah. I'll die playing this yeah. game, I swear. I'll and it was die. a local indie Toronto game. It was yeah. like Space, Space Race. Race. yeah. I'm yeah. pretty sure, yeah? Yeah, kids love Space Race. It's like, crazy. We had other games. They just gravitated play it. I've seen kids play that for like maybe five hours straight, and they're just like, <laughs> yeah. just racing. <laughs> just just racing, racing. racing. They're like four, and it's crazy. I've never... So... Big ups, like, amazing, amazing capture yeah. children. And Jazz Punk. Jazz, Jazz Punk, Punk, which yeah. was made by Necrophone oh, Games. Gosh, yes. Oh, <laughs> fantastic game. Adult Swim did a really cool promo of it. I oh, really? horrible yeah. because I yeah? cannot actually play Jazz Punk because of it's the It's so person, dizzy. The first, pers- the first person perspective, yeah. works, like, certain games kind of mess me up, like, mm-hmm. as far as, um, I don't know what that's called, you know, where you have that... Uh, you get car- uh, motion sickness? Yeah, or? yeah, you get the motion sickness. Yeah. From the first first games and, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. like, Jazz Punk just messes me up, and I hate it because yeah. it's so incredible. Yeah. I find that if you... Sorry, this is not for, like, the listeners, but yeah. there's a certain mouse control you can use. Yeah. That's what I, I ended up doing. Yeah, I'll, I'll but kids, no, they do not get motion sick. They will yeah, yeah, play yeah. through yeah. the vomit. Yeah, exactly. Or if they do, they don't care. Yeah. Um... But yeah, they've been playing that for like 12 weeks yeah. now. Oh my god, now they don't get like, the don't jokes too. Yeah. They don't get the jokes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like frustrated. I'm looking at Armand's <laughs> eyes. Like, you don't understand, yeah. man. So then, what? What kind? What do you find that there's like specific kinds of games that 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 help people sort of get mm-hmm. in, get like like kids get in this? Like, what are the games that kind of hit home with them? Like, what, or is there types of games, or is it just like whatever works that week works? Uh, I think maybe there is something to do with um you know the ease of playing it and uh and the experience of the game being something that is encouraging um and not especially when they're learning right and not being like okay game over restart um but i, I would say like most of the time it's, it's 
kind of surprising what they they latch onto. Like you don't really know until mm-hmm. until uh, they played. And and I think you know among re- many reasons, um, that's one of the ways that kids kind of have a, a pe- peculiar truth to them, and. Uh, can observe things that aren't usually observed because it's like you know this game is actually cool and you you can't tell until like a whole bunch of games like uh, a whole bunch of kids sorry like the game uh and they and just listening to them explain why mm-hmm. uh, can often like show you a lot of things about what makes good de- uh, good design and like experience is fun i think it's also cool when they criticize the games yeah. um so uh, this is a story from sagan yi who just dropped by the game curious session one time um like a kid was playing braid i think yeah, and you yeah, have, yeah, there's a certain part where, like the Goomba, like Goomba clones, whatever they're called, um, you kind of they are helping you, but then you use them to you jump on them or something, and then they die, and then that that's how you cross something. Yeah. And the kid was like, "Why you gotta do that? Like, yeah. then he was your friend." And it like kind of makes you think about, huh? And I think he's like, "Stop playing." He's like, "Nah, I'm he not gonna playing. do yeah, it, man." Yeah, he stopped playing. I'm not gonna do it. He's just like, uh, <laughs> "Not gonna," you know. It's like the action is kind of sociopathic, but we took it, we yeah. took it for granted as just resources in the game. Yeah. 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 It's, it's weird with that. I got a double look at like Yoshi now. Yeah, I know, exactly. Like, hmm, hmm. Exactly. And he's just eating and Kirby, like Kirby just <laughs> eats people, transforms people. But there are many Mario Mario Maker levels where Yoshi is there purely to launch herself <laughs> oh, yeah, over yeah. a cliff. Yeah. Um, which inevitably results in Yoshi's death. Yeah. Yoshi so, just falls. Yeah. It's a true it's, martyr. Takes one from the team. Quite, it's quite dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's it's almost. I feel like there's like there's a specific subset of Mario Maker levels where the plot is you make friends with an enemy type or yeah, a Yoshi yeah. and it will carry you through and it will die here. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's these beautiful videos of people trying to pass through these levels without killing Yoshi and finding all these workarounds to do it. Yeah. <laughs> They're trying to play Mario Maker as Paragon, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a uh, Mass Effect three joke. Mass Effect, all, all, all of Mass Effect. All Mass Effect. Apologies. Yeah. Thanks for explaining the joke, Armand. I uh, for those who haven't existed in 2009. Um, yeah. The, uh, so, with you've kind of touched on this already. Have there been any kind of moments or landmarks that you've kind of looked at Game Curious and seen like, oh, this is working. This is something that people are attaching to. Um, I think definitely one of the times, you know, seeing the game that they made was cool. But, uh, like, in the process of making it, are you talking about you putting me for the Sonic? The <laughs> So, one of the kids I actually programmed through um, Scratch, like... Uh, uh, movement um, on his own. We taught him to, you know, animate it and do all these things. Um, you know, I, I also teach and tutor kids uh, game development design. So, um, you know, something I, I am fortunate enough to experience enough is uh, kids, kids getting it, you know, and really and really doing things and quite honestly surprising me a lot. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm continuously surprised at the, the abilities and, um, you know, that so much of it is... Um, misconception of their age not being able to do things and experience but um a lot of times they have ideas and uh and goals and because they don't understand the context and and people haven't been telling them there's a certain way to do things for so long uh it's good them to see them think of solutions that you know in our patterns and uh even as like in our 20s or whatever we're still overlooking you know and that youth has again um that value that in- intrinsic value i think to it uh yeah, so I'm way off. I think the question. I kind of forget what it. Um, what a special Where's moments. He, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, when he made, um, you know, he got Sonic to move and uh, and animate all by himself. And by if you've used Scratch before, it's a it's a visual kind of scripter. Uh, so you're dragging like almost like uh, plugging different nodes in. Uh, and you know, just that that look. Um, once once they're they they recognize that in themselves, they're you know 
that they're able to do that to that extent, I think is uh, uh, is pretty sweet. For me, like special moments are just seeing the characters they design. Yeah. Like these are racialized kids. Okay, for me, it's really important when you're making media to, or like when you're viewing media to have yourself reflected in it because so often. If you're a person of color, if you're from any kind of identity, you don't see that. But these kids, like, right off the bat, you don't say anything. You give them a piece of paper, they'll draw someone who looks like them. Mm-hmm. And that's so important because then all the characters in these games are racialized. It was like, yeah. it really, and it's because um, it's really touched me because every um, game session, game curious session, we try to do a race presentation. Yeah. And it always goes back to, can we find any um, black protagonists who are kid-friendly and not stereotypes yeah. of any video games. Other than Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Other than Michael Jackson and Moonwalker. And it's... Just start with that anyways. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, um, and it's what, just What have you so... found when it comes to that? Because that is it's particularly a fraught oh field God, that you're yeah. looking for black protagonists. Um, there's Broken Age. Yeah. Um, 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 Broken Age, Shantae. Yeah. S-H-A-N-T-A-N-T. Oh, she's like half a genie, I think. And that... Um, like then, uh, games that you can create your own character and customize. That's that tends to be the ones we show, like Sims. You know, Dragon Ball Z. Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, Universe, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Black Namekins. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you got a special name for that guy. Like, yeah, yeah, can I say it? In there? <laughs> <laughs> Probably <laughs> not. Probably not on radio. Yeah. Oh my god. Probably not. Rise of Piccolo. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> oh, yeah, but but um, yeah, we tend to show them games where they can customize, and more often than not, they will choose characters that look like them, and they will create families. Like we gave one girl The Sims. I think Shakira was her name, and she made a family of like Shakira family, and they all looked like her, but they also all looked like her brothers yeah. and sisters. And they um, like a lot of families do come to her program, so it was just really refreshing and it inspiring to see. Yeah, you know? create a family, then well, you're gonna create your family. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah. yeah, it's good to see that they they see the necessity of that as well. Yeah. That, you know, not necessarily consciously maybe, but mm-hmm. to say like, you know, we want to see games exactly like that, um, that reflect what we go through and look like. So I think that uh, for the spirit of gaming and uh, again, we're seeing the industry a lot of times now, it's, it's uh, heartening to see mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I think that's, we're going to go into our last part. Yeah. Okay. Uh, where are we then? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this script has gotten like all flipped up. Uh, well, okay. So since we've been talking about memorable moments, we might as well go into memorable games of the year. So okay. we're all probably used to seeing some kind of top ten list or awards, but uh, the plan here is to do a little something a little different. Okay. Um, instead of going with the best, let's go for fascinating. Let's go for something interesting. Um, what was the game that struck each of you the most, good or bad, and why should another human being play it? And we're gonna go one by one around the room. So, is it a game from 2015? It does not have to be a, a game, game you that... played in 2015. Okay, it doesn't have to have come out okay, in 2015. Okay. Um, so, John, um, what is the most memorable game of the year for you? Uh, okay, so it's there's been a lot going on this year. So just so. Two very quick hits. Um, Batman Arkham Knight was memorable because of how broken it was. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I got it. I, I, I bought me. a six hundred dollar graphics card to play it on the uh, PC, which was the damn. most broken version. It came with a free code and as well as a code for the other game I'm going to mention. Um, so that was kind of a mess. Destiny was most memorable um, cool. for over the past year because it's an incredibly fascinating game, but it's like it's. A, the game itself is is fascinating, but the story behind the game is just as fascinating. Um, it's a shame that you basically have to spend one hundred and thirty dollars to figure to find out how it all happened, <laughs> unless you want to start from scratch. Because yeah. you know, 
um, if anyone's not, if you're if listeners aren't aware, Destiny went through like a very labored um, mm-hmm. development. It kind of came out kind of half baked. Mm. The expansions built on it like very incrementally. It's finally, I think, at a good place where, in my mind, I think the universe built in that game feels more evocative rather than just empty. Mm. Um, so I think that was cool. But I, I also mean, believe uh, yeah. last year's built to play year end special and <laughs> sort of Armand screaming at the void about Destiny. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> so there's people people interested in knowing what Destiny was like. Yeah, I would can love turn to, back yeah. a year. I would. I would love to know what it will end up being. Yeah, because yeah. it's such a different game from like exactly a year ago to now. Mm-hmm, and I'm mm-hmm. super. What will it look like in a year? Because that game is a hundred percent different. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like as, I guess very clearly, the, like the most memorable game, like the best game for me, was uh, The Witcher Three. Oh um, yeah, just incredible scripting and incredible quest design. Um, I mean, like more than any of those buzzwords, I feel I felt more than any other game. I felt like I was in a place yeah. with real people with history behind it. Um, like I was looking, I was, I'd be walking through the grasslands and I'd be picking up flowers and I remember the names of those flowers from playing the original Witcher games. Like there's a continuity there, which isn't just here's another potion. It, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Like round characters, things that completely, that, that completely buck the trend of your typical RPG tropes and games. Mm-hmm. And like, it, it's absolutely incredible. And that, that one time you had to choose whether or not to throw a baby in the oven. So. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert! <laughs> no Fantastic. world decisions. Kill the babies or, si- or send them oh, to the yeah. university. Quite literally. So yeah, that's mine. Uh, so cool. th- thank you for that, John. Uh, Kadeem, can we just put you down for Dragon Ball Xenoverse? Yeah. <laughs> 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 Was pretty sweet. I can't lie. Um, yeah, uh, I like agreed. That. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't play it online. I think maybe if I did play it online, I would have been uh, really down. I still I might get on PS3. Yeah, I workout. tried. Yeah, <laughs> pirate it. So I only can play single player. Um, yeah, it was still pretty awesome. Uh, so, like, just a disclaimer: I'm, I like I'm so far behind in playing games that I'm like just play like random things. I'm developing a game right now, uh, so I'm also doing like research for it. So the games I'm playing are kind of random. Uh, so just a disclaimer. So one of the, the main one I think that I played um, that's kind of new, that was really good, was uh, Shadow Warrior on PC, and. Uh, I love I love playing games sometimes too. Uh, depending on the game too, like albums, like I'll, I'll play an album in the background and kind of play. Th- so I played Shadow Warrior all the time to Woo Block, and it was like awesome. It's so it's so good, and I'm just like way in the zo- like zone, killing demons and uh, like yeah, it's just like uh, making you feel in a place like immersive. The controls are really sweet and the kind of emblematic of uh, Red Steel too. Um, but for for PC, so everything is really smooth. How you go into combos is awesome. Um, more than a lot of uh, FPSs I found I've played recently, like newer ones, it kind of was just like, just like awesome fight sequences, one after the other. Just like okay, no in between, like stupid side missions where you're like, you know, your squad is missing out the final or whatever, whatever. Just like really good, um, consistent uh, gameplay experiences, which is really cool. Really cool weapons, um, dual wielding stuff like that. Uh, so to depart from that, um, I was I played a really old game uh, on Genesis. Um, Shadowrun oh, for Genesis, um, and I've been playing it. It's one of the first games I can I, like I actually owned, and I've never beat it until this year. I finally <laughs> I finally beat it. It's the best Shadowrun. feeling ever. It's actually an awesome game, um, and so many things don't uh, kind of take in that economy. So basically, you can't die, kind of like Bioshock, um, but everything just takes your money. 
So like you're just you have to do you have to hustle so hard. No other game do you have to hustle as hard as that. And like Space basically the game. Yeah, it's yeah. It's just sense depressing and real. Yeah. It is. Yeah, it is like so much. Just like man, people try to rob you. People try to come up to you and like sell grenades to you sketchily, and then sometimes you can like buy them and they're like legit. Or other times they can turn out to be cops, and if you don't have like a, <laughs> a permit, they arrest you and stuff. Everything just costs money, so it's really really interesting. Um, and it gets that like that hood atmosphere down really good. And I'm kind of sad to see where they took Shadowrun um, after. Like, Shadowrun Returns just came out, which is uh, closer to what it was. But um, the one on Genesis was still um, um, action-oriented. It's not uh, turn-based. So when I was playing Shadowrun Returns, I was like, ah. kind of don't feel like playing another XCOM right now. But, you know. Um, and uh, the last game I played is kind of randomly is um, Alistair++, which is a dating sim. Um, and it was pretty good. Again, I'm doing research for my game. Uh, and uh, what we've got so far is, is, is demons, cyberpunk, <laughs> cyberpunk economy, yeah. and a dating sim. Yeah, it sounds like a fascinating <laughs> video game. Making I right told now. you it was random, I'm right? I was so <laughs> hyped. I was gonna like come on the show and be like, I'm looking forward to Kadeem's game. <laughs> 2016. Yeah, yeah 20, it's coming out. It's coming out. Are you working Class on Rose. Persona 6? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, so yeah, that one's really interesting. If uh, you aren't, then pitch that right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, you've got it right there. I'm ready to play this. Yeah. A lot of people are. Um, yeah, so just real quick, it was, uh, it's good. It's, you know, uh, it's about, so the story is like you're, you're trying to find someone that griefed you in a, in a game, like in a um, MMO that goes to your school and you're this girl that's trying to find us like between three guys. So I go through that. You can go through the month and he's like, on this day, like either you figure out who I am or you're not getting the item back. Uh, so you can go through and play through the whole game. And then like uh, at the end, you have to guess. And I guess wrong, and it's like game over. <laughs> you lose it. I was like, what? So I had to start it over. But anyways, I was like, that was a really kind of uh, interesting experience because you can just lose at the end. So and uh, you have to play to the end to lose it. And I thought it was an interesting kind of lose condition because you have to play through the whole game either way, and you don't really know to you know if you lose to the end and have to load. So I thought that was pretty cool. Anyways, yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. And uh, Al, I know you are you are probably <laughs> stealing my Undertale. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hand, I literally so. like Daniel asked me to come on the show, and I was like, I'm only coming on if I can talk about Undertale. Yeah, um, and I know it's super hyped up. Um, it's incredibly hyped up, made by Toby Fox. Yeah, mm -hmm. you may recognize that name from Homestuck, which I have yet to read. Okay, I'm a recovering. I'm a recovering. Yeah, recovering. So. <laughs> also recovering Homestuck oh, reader. No. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Undertale is one of those things where it's like I was looking forward so to it for a long time yeah. because I'd been hearing about it so long, just hearing that Toby was working on it for so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, scientifically now, the internet agreed that it was the best game ever. So. Oh yeah, yeah. they're getting back you. They didn't um, win a poll on Game Pack, Best game of the year. Yeah. Best game ever. It's tearing all, 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 all time. All time. Okay. It's, they they and run this. They've held that contest three year, times. So. Yeah. They've held that contest three times, and three they just times? okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, the time changes. <laughs> time changes. <laughs> um, Undertale is just. I love games that can make you rethink what games are capable of doing. Mm. Um, it's a it's an RPG maker game, but it has some really incredible um, fighting a fighting system that's kind of like a bullet hell. If yeah. you want to go down that route, um, and the choices you make in the game, I don't want to spoil it. This is the thing I want to I want to tell people about, but I don't want to spoil it because yeah, yeah. it's really important that you play this game. And you think about, well, it's really meta, mm. so there's a lot of homages, but it does it in a way that really makes you consider um, the meaning of identity as like players, but also as video game characters. And uh, just going back to like that, the whole should you kill or should you not kill with the Goomba thing from that kid mm -hmm. earlier, yeah. it really makes you think 
Man, I'm like, yeah. I'm like speechless right now just thinking about how Undertale affects <laughs> yeah. me on my day to day. The thing with Undertale that I think a lot of yeah. people kind of hit at a oh, surface so level is that the game, it is, it is a game with incredible production values, but they're oh, yeah. not in the visual. Uh, end of no, it looks like an old the, school RPG. It, yeah. it does look, it yeah. looks sort of like a crummy old, old school RPG, <laughs> but it has beautiful music. Like the music God, is absolutely music. incredible, yeah. and mechanically everything ties into. A, like, the music's really good, just, like, leitmotif style mm-hmm. and effectively kind of introducing characters through sound. But yeah. then the game, like, the, the the gameplay is somewhere, this this interesting hybrid between an RPG and a shooter and a dating sim. Yeah. Um, oh, my God, the dating yeah, aspect uh, of this game. It's, it's, this, it's oh. a really beautiful, like, combination of genres that kind of bends your expectations of what any of the three yeah. can be. Yeah. Um, and it's a really, really great game. And there's, again, like, in terms of just memorable stuff, like, there's just individual moments that I think we both don't want to we say. Don't, I don't want to spoil it. The thing is, there are so many different endings for this game depending on you could do one like back to the dating sim you could do a single action wrong and it would change your entire outcome mm. um, but yeah. because the game is so meta it's also meta in itself because the data mining for this game is unreal yes the, all right the, the the there's a hidden done. character in this game that changes the plot for you it's like yeah. the, the thing the community has yeah. done with that game sort of akin to Mario Maker oh, is yeah. really really fascinating oh yeah oh yeah they have all tools eh? please play it also the way it tackles uh, gender Superb. I think this is the first time I've seen at least... Well, okay, yeah. I don't want to spoil it, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure everyone just kind of agrees certain characters are non-binary. Um, and that's yeah. really important. Um, yeah. It's you get to, to you get a data skeleton. Yeah. You get to data skeleton, everybody. Yeah. Like, game of the, the year. Character in video games, so. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. It's like, f- everything, too. <laughs> you know that game by uh, yeah, Lena yeah. NW? Or... Wait, no. Um... Is that like a Kuro game from Japan? It or? was in uh, Wordplay. Oh. Um, Lena and W, also named as Universe Hactress, and um, she raps as well. Oh my god. Under, uh, what is it? Felicia. Um, Felicia Day? Felicia. Felicia. Something. Uh, Felicia Geisha. Felicia Geisha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she made a game called <laughs> Everything. That's. Uh, it's okay. kind of like that. I gotta play of, it. Yeah, gotta play that. It, yeah, definitely. All right. It's going to be a fun one to get through the censors. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my bad. <laughs> no, it's okay. That's the name of the game. We can't it is, that. yeah. It's, uh, that's their fault, not yeah. ours. Yeah, we'll yeah. just... I'll that just is re- a proper noun. <laughs> proper, yeah. <laughs> Capital. Exactly. It's like, you know, when you cover Pussy Riot. You yeah, got to say yeah, Pussy yeah, Riot. Yeah, yeah. Peter Mansbridge yeah. saying covering Pussy Riot was like oh the best part of my journey. We have an entire <laughs> entry on that School. in the CBC language. Oh, yeah? It's fantastic. Fantastic. They also... Is there official now one for Lightsaber? Yes. Yes. We went through several emails figuring out or soliciting a rule for lightsaber ER versus lightsaber RE. Oh. Um, the lot like the, the latter of which is completely wrong. Right. right. <laughs> light sabra. It's a proper light noun. Sabra. It's a proper noun. It's it has pro- to be yeah. the ER. Like, do they have yeah. to spell it the way they spell it? But out? if it's a proper noun, then is it capitalized? And that's... So, no. Really- no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's not no. do this. Do we do this now? Like, <laughs> well, yeah. Light sabra yeah. isn't sure. a proper noun. No, okay. no, no. studio for another uh, hour. Let's it is, it's a coin Could term, I mention one more game? Absolutely. One more game. Sorry. Apologies. I just remembered. No, no, no worries. No worries. Do you. Space Funeral by the Canamites. All-time favorite game. It's actually the game that got me into indie video games. Because it's an RPG maker game, super simple, disgusting graphics. The graphics are like garbage, <laughs> but the way it deconstructs the genre and just, yeah, it just deconstructs the genre so well that it made me like change my mind about everything and go back into gaming and enter the Hanai society and yeah. who are paying me money, yeah, which is yes, always nice. So is, basically, it kind of changed my life. Hmm. Um, besides that, uh, all-time favorite, very, very short game, uh, The Room of a Thousand Snakes. 
Mm. Uh, I think it's by. So it's pretty good. good. <laughs> That's fantastic. It's literally yeah. it will take you like two minutes to play, but it's a lot of snakes. Whenever I yeah. feel bummed out, I just play that game. That sure, sounds sure. like a real uplifting yeah. game. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I feel bummed out, I enter this room full of <laughs> a thousand thousand snakes. snakes. Yeah, yeah. Cute snakes. I think it's by Arcane Kids, but I, I can like fact check that. All right. All right. Thank you guys so much for your time. Um, thank you. Now uh, we're gonna have you go in and alert the other guys that need to come in this side this room. But um, would you mind sticking around? We can uh, for a little bit at the end. Sure. Sure. Yeah. sure. And that's it for the first half of the second episode of Built to Play Year in Review. Welcome back. You're listening to Built to Play. Uh, I'm Armin Bali. I'm Daniel Rosen. And with us is a couple new guests for this year in review. We have Eric Weiss. Hello. And Alex Bethke. Hi. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Fantastic. Yeah, we had a conver- we had a conversation where I had to convince Armin that it definitely was Bethke. Yeah. <laughs> but Bethke. Yeah. Um, I do get that a lot, and I have to admit, uh, I just got married recently. My wife specifically took my last name because the spelling of her first name and the combination of the last name basically means no one will ever say her name right. And she wanted that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if you gotta go, you gotta go all the way, right? Yeah. You go to town in a Lincoln. Um, so, what you are the Alex, you're the designer of uh, Fate Tectonics? Uh, programmer. I'm not programmer. actually the lead designer. Programmer? Yeah. With, uh, you worked with Golden Gear Games, is the name of the company? Yeah, I'm actually the co founder of that studio. So. Yeah. So, for those listening at home, what is Fate Tectonics? Fate Tectonics is a world-building puzzle game in which you uh, build out a world by placing tiles and matching the sides, grass to grass, forest to forest, so on. You awaken a pantheon of godlike beings that we call fates, and your ultimate goal is to build a world large enough to awaken all the fates and stable enough to survive their disasters. So, how did you get started building uh, a game about building a world? How did that, that get started with your team? Uh, so it started off, Andrew Travis, um, the co-founder of my studio, uh, started it as a one-game-a-month project um, where he had some ideas for some mechanical features he wanted to put together, and so he started building the prototype of what eventually became Fate Tectonics. He uh, brought it into Bento Miso, where we work, and uh, showed it to me after about a month of development, and right away I recognized two things, and this is one of my favorite stories to tell about the game. The two things were, Andrew had the seed of something special that I definitely needed to spend more time on, and I knew he was going to keep working on the game, even on company time, whether I wanted to or not. So I was like, hey, why don't we make this a corporate game? Like, make it one of our company games. And that way, it's totally fine that you spend weeks and weeks working <laughs> on this. So what was the what was then that growth process like? Where did you have to... What was the prototype versus where it had to go from there? Well, it's been... A really interesting journey. Like we've had a lot of organic aspects of the game, especially around the design that have come up from exhibiting at um, conventions like Bit Bazaar and Pax East and stuff. We started off with a very simple uh, tile placing mechanic where you just place the pieces kind of like a jigsaw puzzle and match the sides. And there was just three fates that were moving around, and you had to begin balancing your actions between them. The current pantheon, I think, is up to about nine fates in the full game, and now we actually have multiple game modes, each controlled by their own set of uh, fates or Gaia fates, as we like to call them. So it's uh, it's been a bit of an interesting journey, especially from where we started to where we ended up. So this game ended up out on Steam. It took a. I remember meeting you at PAX East, and you hadn't quite gone it to green light. Um, what 
what is it like getting on Steam these days? Because it, it, they've gone through multiple processes, and now that the the, the app marketplace seems to be much more open, what is that process like? Yeah, it, I mean, it was really interesting for us. So from my perspective, the thing that I hear a lot about now when we talk about Greenlight is I hear all these stories of games being greenlit in like three days and four days, these sort of big breakout, I guess, marketing successes in that sense. Whereas us, we were a little bit of longer. We were on Greenlight for about 180 days. So it was a bit of a slow burn for us to, to build our momentum, but we definitely got there. And uh, so if nothing else, it seems like the 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 marketing efforts around Greenlight campaigns are very time condensed now. It's you're trying to blitz and get something done very, very quickly within like a, you know, 10 day period as opposed to where we went with like a long, you know, multiple, uh, multi-month, multiple conventions and just slowly getting attention built up anywhere we could. Mm -hmm. What, like, given that Marketplace is so packed, like, what are what are the things that need, you need to do to be successful with a game on Steam these days? Like, there is making the game good. That's one aspect of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's so much competition out there, and it's unless you're unless you're kind of on one the the main page, um, kind of how do you go about it? Honestly, if there's no simple answer, if there if there was, you know, you would see Fate Tectonics on the front page of all mm -hmm. of the sites that we're on. Um, the biggest challenge I think that we have and have always had, even through development and launch, is just visibility. Um, we're a small studio in Toronto. You know, we have a track record of games, but it's mostly for client releases. So getting our name out there has been a big challenge. For us, one of the ways that we've been doing that definitely is through social media, but also through going to Bazaars, PAX East, PAX Prime, any convention we can get to and afford to travel to. And uh, we're just trying to make connections with people and get them generally interested. Because we've definitely seen especially for our game, we've gotten into a point where when people play it, they tend to love it. So our biggest problem now is we just need to get more people playing it. So how do you go about think, how do you go about getting people to, to try it out? Is it aside from just showing up at people's door and saying, hey, here's the new game? <laughs> yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, there, there is part of my day where I basically just research potential Let's players and media outlets and then write cold call style emails and be like, hey, check out Fate Tectonics. It's a unique world building puzzle game where we've actually made destruction as part of the core elements of the game. And this is unique from every other world building game out there. So. Um, the two tiers of it for me are one side is just try and make people aware in more traditional marketing terms about the game and then the other is try and be more active in terms of uh, volunteering in the local community, taking advantages of opportunities like this to come and speak about you know the game and career and stuff like that and trying to raise just awareness about the studio and ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, this uh, games like the Tectonics often come under the banner of indie, but that's a category that's becoming like exceedingly broad. Mm -hmm. When you have like a company like Clay that outsourced a version <laughs> of their game to Capybara and other yeah. uh, indie studios, and these are studios that are now like they have maybe as many um, members as like a PS2 era game might have had. Um, where do you find yourself sitting in that spectrum, and does the term indie help you at all? We definitely still refer to ourselves as indie. I think conceptually, especially when we're talking about the fact that, you know, there's uh, myself, Andrew, and Rosemary as our, our artists are sort of the core Golden Gear team. The indie label helps explain who we are very, very quickly in that sense. In terms of where we like to think we sit, you know, um, we've done enough stuff that I definitely don't feel like I'm a beginner indie. I mean, I've been making games now for 13 years, and I've, I've, I've worked on almost 100 games in that time. Um, I think we've released about 85 of them commercially. So 
where I in no way compare ourselves to say someone like Capybara or Drinkbox. You know, I like to think we're sort of middle indie, at least in terms of the Toronto scene where, you know, there's people who are coming into the scene who would like to get to where we are, but we're definitely not, you know, we want to do better and want to get to where someone like Capybara is. I think, like, kind of furthering the point, this is, I guess, kind of, like, for everybody, Does what does, especially now, like, with the way games are coming out, the way Steam is structured, the way indie studios are going, like, what does indie mean from the perspective of somebody who wants to play a game? Like, what does that mean to play an indie game at this point, I guess? Does that does that actually have a mean? Like, does that terminology have a meaning beyond just, like, it was made by a smaller studio? I've been so focused on the development side of games that I think, yeah. for me, like, I would personally say that I don't know that an indie necessarily means a lot to mm-hmm. the average consumer. I think it's more, again... Um, a concept that allows people to say, you know, I'm potentially on a small team, I'm underfunded, I'm working hard in my spare time to get something done. Like, those are the things that typically seem to hold true between indie projects. And, uh, again, on the consumer side, I just don't know how much value there is in that term anymore, but at least on the the development and the creative side, I think it it helps to use the term. Yeah. I was going to wonder, like, does anybody has, like, because from from my perspective, at least, just as, like, from, like, a vaguely critical perspective, it doesn't it doesn't mean as much because any game seems so much. I was wondering if, if you had any opinion on that, Eric. It, it really, it's it's more useful, like Alex said. Just, it tells you a little bit about the team who made it, where they come from when they were trying to publish it. Like, do they have backing of a Sony? Do they have backing of a, like, like are they able to slap a big publisher's name on it? Um, so it, it tells you like that, but in terms of the type of game it is, it's basically meaningless at this point. You have indie games that are story-based. You have... Games like Super Hexagon, they're not store that are you know mechanical indie games. So it's, it, yeah, it tells you more about the team, but not the content. Mm-hmm. And okay. and they, like you can't really be a fan of. You can say that you're a fan of like small teams, like to support small teams, but to say that you're a fan of indie games doesn't really tell you tell anybody anything about the type of games you like to consume anymore. Yeah, I feel like there was a certain point there which just sort of said you like games like Braid and Limbo, which is like you like 2D puzzle platformers. I, I, think, we, I think yeah. we're. I think that we're thankfully well past that. Yeah, very much so. But we, yeah, we've, I think Armin and I have been having this conversation recently where it's just sort of like we are past the age of the of the Braid-like, which is which is nice. I mean, and Think Tectonics comes at like that small level design a very different direction that you are actually building a world there. and there, But as you build, there are consequences and potential for destruction. So what is the appeal of both having the, the, the freedom to build that world, but also been the fear of that it might be destroyed or will be destroyed along the way? Uh, talking to that aspect of the game has always been a bit of a challenge because it, it, it's actually a bit of a long story in terms of how that all came about. Um, there was, we wanted to create a complex game that was very simple to play, which of course is, you know, a, a big challenge from there. Um, we wanted to have a bunch of mechanics that allowed people to easily jump into the game and try it out. And then... One of the big things, I had to sort of quickly speak to this, it may not directly answer your question, but uh, where did the destruction elements came from? There's two places it came from. One was just Andrew and I are both old SimCity fans, and, you know, I like to get to a point in the game where I can save it and just kick the crap out of whatever it is I've built. And so we definitely wanted to play around a lot um, in terms of, like, risk and reward, in terms of the basic world building, and that's where sort of the core, like, you can play some stuff, but if you make mistakes, everything crumbles, and so there's tension around there. But as we started exhibiting the game in the current form, it was very sandboxed and open-ended. And so there wasn't actually any, like, we were still figuring out, like, what is the end goal of the game as much as, you know, just showing it off at events. 
And so we were at some bit bazaars and people were playing the game for up to 45 minutes at a time. We actually had a problem where we were like, we need to show the game to more people. And so we actually built in the Doom timer that we have in the demo version of the game, which again, skipping over some of the details, um, Basically, we ended up rolling that feature back into the core version of the game because people liked building their worlds but also destroying them so much. And so we're like, okay, there's something here, again, in the same way that the, the original seed was. We saw another opportunity to work into that stuff. And so we just sort of leaned into it. And so there's the... A lot of it comes back to just playing around with risk and reward in terms of, like, you know, how quickly do you want to play? How dangerous do you want to be? And then that fun sort of tension you get around like oh no if i screw up i'm gonna lose all of my world so that aspect is almost accidental yeah to a certain extent like it came as i said very organically where we were noticing people were taking really long to play in the demo so we added the time limit where you get to level two and then you have a five limit doom timer that comes in and again we call it the doom timer we have this big skull with a countdown that's showing the whole time we don't explain what it is so people are like well what happens when the, the Doom Timer hits zero. And of course we're like, yes, what does happen when the Doom Timer hits zero? And so from there, people were engaging with the, the demo mode so much and we were still having a hard time sort of communicating some of the features of the game and some of the end goal when we were doing like IGF festival submissions and stuff. And then one day we kind of all clicked and realized the demo mode is the core aspect of the game. And then we came up with this whole concept of the cycle of ages. So you build up a world and eventually you're forced to destroy it. But in earning achievements, um, you gain more time. So each progressive age, you build up your world further and further until you can unlock all of the fates. And at least for me, I think that was sort of one of the best parts of both exhibiting the game and working on it and working with our audience and recognizing like what did and didn't work when interacting with fans directly. With then um, kind of how that game then has to, to go, I mean, you ha the player has to discover a lot of it along the way. How do you then treat that level of discovery that, it, that a player might see it as like, oh, this game isn't completely impenetrable? It was very challenging. Um, ever since we started, Andrew, his goal was to make a completely textless game. And from day one, I said, Best of luck, buddy. <laughs> so Rosemary and I let him, him, you know, sort of try out all kinds of techniques for many, many months, even, you know, eventually a year or two. And then eventually we got to a point where we're like, look, we see the same choke points at every demo. We clearly need to just explain something. And so our initial launch, we had no tutorial, but we had a very light hint system that was basically saying the 10 or 12 things to players that we found ourselves constantly telling them about at demos. The current version of the game, we've actually gone the step further where we've built a tutorial mode with their own fate, Tutor, who is a fully hold your hand, guide you through every aspect of the game so you fully understand the very basic part of the game. And again, a large part of that um, was all directly as a result of seeing what did and didn't work with fans out in the live setting. From that sense, you know, exhibiting the game has been extremely valuable for us because it's really helped us hone the game design a lot further than I think we would have on our own. Okay. And, um, I was actually wondering then, and this is sort of kind of getting really into the degree stuff, like, do you think it's possible to have a game with a, a, a relatively complicated mechanics without a tutorial that doesn't, that only explains those true mechanics? Because we were chatting about Mario Maker beforehand with, um, with, uh, with, with Jonathan, and we were talking about how it's, it's so, fa you know, it's so amazing that the game, you know, that's the thing that makes Mario great is that it teaches you how to play, like Mario's one through world, like they teach you to play without telling you anything. It's all about the way the world is laid out, and that's how it teaches you to play, just playing the game. Is that is that possible with a you know a game that has a little bit more player interaction to it? I think ultimately 
your ability to succeed on that stuff will kind of depend on the types of games that you're making. So for Mario Maker, and the one that I always think about when we talk about this type of stuff is, uh, I believe it was Mega Man X, mm-hmm. uh, Sequelitis did this yeah. amazing breakdown, just absolutely blew my mind as a game designer of, of all the stuff they did to just, like, again, make the level work. But fundamentally, like... Those are both sort of platformer games, right? And again, it seems there that you can do it. For something like Fate Tectonics, I don't think we ever could have gotten it to the point where it's 100% intuitive because the puzzle is looking at the minute interactions of, you know, what happens when I place a city on the edge of the map and when an explorer interacts with the forest and stuff like that. And there's so much stuff going on in our game in particular that... I just don't think anyone would ever fully appreciate it. Like, they may be able to play it and totally enjoy what's going on, but to truly understand all the minutiae of stuff, like, we, we will have to explain some things. Mm-hmm. It, so, with uh, there's a lot of games this year that have come out and been very good, and it's tempting to give accolades to them all, but which we'll do in a second. I think everyone here has a, has a favorite game that they encountered. But first, Eric Weiss, um, you're a writer for Dorkshelf, and recently you wrote about the Canadian Video Game Awards. Um, for anyone not in Canada, um, how close is this to, say, uh, the Game Awards or the Oscars? Um, that's a good question. I've never been to the Game Awards or the Oscars, so it's a little bit difficult for me to compare. I would say that it's probably not the same scale. But what's interesting with the Canadian Video Game Awards, you look at some of the games that are nominated, and it doesn't seem like you're really sacrificing much quality, which is actually one of the things that I really like about Canada is just how good the games are that are made here. You have some really big studios like Ubisoft, you have Square Enix in Montreal, but then you also have like mid-level indies like Clay and like Cappy, and then you also have some individual indies like MetaNet this year won the Fan Choice Award for uh, N plus plus. So like, that's kind of what I like about the KDB games, like the actual the quality of the nominees, and it doesn't look that far off from the Game Awards that happened the week before. But in terms of the show itself, it definitely feels like it's a much, but there's much less attention around it. It's far more toned down. There aren't as many people at the venue. It's not as hot. It's not as hot a ticket, and it seems like. And, and it seems like that's where the kind of the Canadian aspect in some ways limits it because there's, you know, 30 million or so people here compared to, you know, 350 million in the U.S. So you, you, you run into those issues of scale, even if the games themselves do display the same level of quality. You initially wrote an article that was fairly optimistic in the lead up to this. And then you wrote a column on how you weren't quite as happy as with, with the piece. Um, what happened? What, what went on during the game war, the Canadian Video Game Awards that made you kind of... N- not change your mind necessarily, but put it in a bad state? Yeah, it wasn't so much that I changed my mind, because some of the problems you would kind of see coming, like, just for the same levels of scale that I just mentioned, for example. But, like, one of the problems is that it's basically, I think it is it is a genuinely good faith effort to promote Canadian games. It's like, that's when I wrote the article beforehand, I was speaking about the organizers, and that was the point she made, was like, yes, they want, there's so many great games in Canada, it's great to try and celebrate them. And I think that was a genuine good faith effort. The problem is the implementation left a lot to be desired. And in particular, it's a lot of the, for example, they partnered with BitBazaar this year. And so there were a lot of indie developers and people who, and BitBazaar is generally a fairly well attended event. For, for those who aren't listening from within Canada, what is the BitBazaar or within Toronto for that matter? <laughs> uh, yeah, the BitBazaar is basically, it's an independent games marketplace is I guess the best way to describe it. So it's, if you've been to a comic convention, an independent games comic festival or any kind of thing where it's a whole bunch of people who have booths and they set up their game and then they will sell pins and buttons or prints or whatever and talk to fans. And normally it takes place in Toronto at a site called Bento Miso and it's a lot smaller it's a, it's, a much, it's a much smaller venue. They usually don't charge any admission. 
and it's usually very densely packed, which is one of the nice things about a smaller venue when uh, you don't need as many people to make it really feel like an event and it's a happening. And also because there's no uh, no entry fee, uh, you, all the exhibitors will tell their friends, it's just like, just come down for the afternoon. It doesn't cost you anything. Come say hi, see what's walking around, and then maybe people buy something. And I think that was one of the problems that they ran into for the video game awards was they, for example, they had they partnered with BitBazaar and they had all the same tables that I'm used to seeing, the same developers I'm used to seeing, but there was pretty much nobody from the outside because they were charging, I think, $35 for a ticket or like $15 in advance, or if you, if you bought a ticket in advance. And it was just hard to get that like, casual walk-in view. Like, people didn't seem to know it was happening. And so the space was bigger. It just felt emptier. And I know that, for example, that aspect of it disappointed a lot of people who are exhibiting who are used to more attention at this kind of event. I mean, were there any cringeworthy moments? I mean, we're used to that with every iteration of the Game Awards, whether it was the Spike VGX or the VGAs. Uh, there were... And this was the other weird thing was one of the things that I, yes, there were some cringeworthy moments. Like I felt, I felt really bad for some of the presenters, like Marissa, uh, Marissa Rebejo from EP Daily, having to wear a t-shirt that said hashtag MOBA make me horny. Partly because, partly because I don't know, like, like it was something that they said during the telecast before that point. And I don't, but when you're actually at the venue, it was really hard with the acoustic on this. We were basically sitting on a converted hockey arena. And the acoustics made it very difficult to hear what they were saying from the stage. It seems like it was kind of a car, that part was designed for the Twitch broadcast. So we heard kind of the beginnings of an inside joke that didn't really land. And then they kept playing up this inside joke and nobody really knew what they were talking about outside of the fact that it was a now honest t-shirt. So it, it was, yeah, it, it was the kind of, I know, like, like it was just a lot of the references seemed like they were the things from the eighties. There was like a big weekend at Bernie's joke was supposed to be the big punchline. And I don't know how much traction that movie still has in 2015. It just seemed like whoever wrote it did not seem to know who the audience was for the jokes that they were trying to write. I like how for anybody who is listening to this, when I know we have listeners from outside of Canada, I like how people listening to this from outside of Canada are just going to think, oh, the Canadian Video Game Awards being held in a hockey rink is possibly the most stereotypical <laughs> thing they'll ever hear in their lives. It's like, that's what Canada is, right? The Canadian Video Game is on a hockey rink. But then who do you think... So you mentioned that, like, not knowing who the audience is. And yes, I don't think a Weekend of Bernie's joke is going to land with the average Twitch audience. But... Who is the audience? Well, and of the that Game was Awards? for me. That was the problem. Was I didn't know mm-hmm. because in the one sense it's there to celebrate Canadian games. So for a lot of the people at the event, you know, they have a bar, they have a whole bunch of developers. For them, it's a night to celebrate their achievements. And like honestly, I think that's fine. If you've if all these people put in all this work for a year, I'm not going to blame anybody for deciding they want to throw a party. Go for it. Uh, the, but then when you have like the level of production they had, like that stage was not cheap like they really did it was a good looking technical production in terms of just the values of it but that means if the broadcast is meant to attract a wider audience you have to actually like give more attention to that you have to figure out what's going to play and who you're actually trying to market it to and that was the part part the part uh (laughs) gee that kind of felt like it was missing so and the part that i really felt like I didn't know what to expect from the show. Right. I, then to, to what extent was then the awards themselves? I mean, as much as we mock the presentations of these, did, were the awards um, representative of the of Canada itself? I, I, I This was the thing that I thought they did fairly well. I couldn't really complain about any of the winners. I mean, there's not that I personally agreed with all of them. 
I probably would have given more attention to Dragon Age Inquisition over Syndicate, but I like Syndicate just fine, and that's kind of what you expect from these. Nobody ever agrees with all the awards that get handed out. Right. So, so it's like I said before, like I think there's enough level of quality. They don't feel like there are any undeserving teams getting nominated or getting presented with awards. So that part didn't really raise any red flags for me. It's more, it's more just the presentation. The I mean, there is one concern when it comes to then those games that you mentioned. I mean, those are all multinational companies. I mean, yes, they have. I mean, especially Assassin's Creed, which has the bulk of its development. Well, as much as you can say any that game is developed anywhere on Earth, um, it, I like. I like to think that Assassin's Creed is developed everywhere in all of us, just sort of in the air. We're all breathing. You're, you're actually working on it right now. Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't think you know this, but we're just your energy is powering it. Um, I mean, is it fair to call those things Canadian, even even if they are spread over, even if they are headquartered here? This is one of the things that I did ask about when I spoke to the organizers of the show, and basically, like for the standards of the show, it's games that were made predominantly in Canada, and so like that is part of it too, where the, the games industry does employ a lot of people here, a lot of companies get tax credits to work here and to hire here. So, in in that sense, it does seem like it's a little bit business focused, but considering how prominent a part of the Canadian tech economy it is right now, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. Alex, what as a developer and someone who's worked in this industry in a while, what are you looking for in a show that does recognize the work of developers in this country? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, well, I mean, on the topic of the Canadian Video Games Award myself, I think I ultimately agree with a lot of what Eric said. I was actually one of the exhibitors there at BitBazaar, and there was, you know, there was some good, there was some bad, there was one or two cringeworthy moments, like one of the nominees being completely um, mislabeled as someone else's game on one of the fancy posters. But I think ultimately events like this need to exist if we want to grow. I know um, a lot of like myself and Henry Faber, uh, when we were talking about Bit Bizarre stuff leading up to the event, we were talking about like, okay, the community, you have said to us many times that you want to see larger gaming events in Toronto and in Canada. Like we're going to try and put one on, come out and support us and like show us that you actually want that to happen. So if you want to say that the whole event itself was a little bit problematic with some of the stuff that they've tried to do, I still think it 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 did a pretty decent job as as you know trying to do it. You know they're out there, they're trying to put on the show, and I think we need that and need them to keep doing it and doing better in the future so that it is more of a viable thing. Like I would love to be there one day and have one of my games be honored. Um, at the same time, I'm also happy just to be there as an exhibitor showing off to the fan fest. But I prefer that there was like marketing about the fan fest and a couple hundred people to appreciate all the effort that we did in setting up our booths and stuff. So, all right, I think that's gonna. Then we're gonna move to the actual awards that we're gonna give out. Although uh, whether the uh, given that everyone has labeled uh, more than one game as their yeah. most memorable game, um, this isn't exactly all that official. So uh, one, each of you, we're gonna start with Eric here. Um, what was your uh, most memorable game of 2015. Doesn't have to be a game you played. Doesn't even have to be the best. Well, it doesn't have to be a game you played. Sorry, does it, it probably should it be played, a game you played. It doesn't it, have to be. A, it has to be a game you played in 2015. 2015. Not necessarily a game that came out in 2015. Yes, but the game that struck you the most in 2015. Doesn't have to be good. Doesn't have to be bad. Just uh, one that that got what you. it is and why humans should play it. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to break the rule about just getting to one because uh, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> no Nobody's stuck it. to that. So. The one I played the most is probably Rocket League, mm -hmm. but Fair I don't really enough. have a whole lot to say about that game because it's basically just perfect. Yeah, just really <laughs> great, right? Like, they just did it. Well, what is Rocket League? You could explain uh, that. Rocket League is it's soccer. It's three-on-three -three soccer with, with remote-controlled cars. Mm -hmm. That That's it. It's it's great. 
Uh, and just the mechanics are extremely well designed, and it's it doesn't add any complexity through adding new features to the game. It just builds it like which is in the same way that regular soccer has an appeal. It's like the rules are very simple. The the beauty and the math it comes from mastery. It's, it's about like watching high level, just like videos of people playing that game are unbelievable. Exactly. So that, and that was for me just like a fun game to play in small disposable chunks. In terms of the games that I really and it's I guess a little bit I'm gonna cheat and to say it was more of a trend. And I just noticed that there were a lot more games that were shorter, story-driven experiences that basically cut out everything they didn't need. And I'm thinking of games like Her Story and Sybil in particular were two of the ones of the year that really stood out for me, where they weren't that long, they didn't take that long to play, but they just had some core that really stuck with me, and they made me that I went home thinking about them afterwards. And that's usually, especially somebody who writes about games, it's like I like things that make me think and that... I'm able to take with me after I'm done playing them. So what about what about you, Alex? I know obviously Fake Tectonics is your game of the year. <laughs> yeah, of but, course, uh, of course. What was the other game or games that uh, that struck you the most in 2015? Well, I mean, if I can give a quick shout out to two games, there's two I would love to mention. The first one, if I had to pick the one, uh, the one that I kept coming back to is Alto's Adventure, an iOS game. <laughs> happened to be Toronto made if I remember correctly yep. and uh, I, I loved it I thought it was a beautiful beautiful game it was really great for me in terms of just like a nice sort of infinite runner style game great art very very serene feel to it a great little mechanic in terms of risk and reward um, constantly trying to get more tricks in the game I just loved it so it's a snowboarding game for anyone who mm -hmm. uh, doesn't isn't familiar with it and uh I've, I've been playing that one for months and months and months now. Um, well past the point that I should have. In terms of just pure, like, just numbers, this, we have two votes. Yes. Alto's, Alto's, uh, Alto's Adventure is the only game with two votes. All right, so, well, uh, I guess that's game of the year. It is official year. game of the year for yeah. Built to Play, apparently. But uh, I definitely am one of those developers who falls into the trap of, I made games, so I don't have time to play games. But I made a point to play one other game this year. And I took a weekend, and the game I played was Bastion. And I really liked that game. I thought... The combat system was a little bit simplistic and was the one thing that initially I was just like, oh, I really want more depth to this. But once I got past that point, I just like the narrative, the music, the story, everything. I just I played it for like 16 hours over two days and was like, that was totally a great way to spend the one weekend I get to play games on this year. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think a lot of people. I, Bastion, I think because it came out on PS4 this year, and and also something else as well. iPad maybe, or was that no? That was uh, Res, uh, Resistor that came out, or Transistor. Tr 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 it was Transistor yeah. earlier this year. That yes. was another game that I played this year and had a lot of thoughts about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was definitely how I felt about Transistor. But I like I watched my brother, my little brother, play uh, Bastion for the first time because it came out on on PS4, and it was a really it was a really interesting experience watching that game fresh again because it is so much like it's nothing individual about Bastion that hits you. It's everything together. This perfect presentation of a game. I think uh, yeah. It's a fantastic example of like a fully polished game, as you're saying, where all the pieces are just melding together beautifully to make a great experience overall. Yeah. All right. I'd like to thank you both for your time around here. Um, and we're going to see if we can get everyone back into the room for a sec. Yeah, let's Thank you to everyone for your time and opinions. We're now at the end of this show. End the year forever. Tune in for this whole show uh, on our website at Built to Play. I've been Daniel Rosen. I've been Armin Bali. Built, uh, Built to Play is made with the help of, and usually we edit this in afterwards, but we have a ton of people in this room right now, so in order, go! I'm Jonathan Orr. I'm Kadeem Dunn. I'm Al Donato. I'm Alex Bethke. I'm Eric Weiss. And I'm <laughs> 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 you can't. <laughs> <laughs>
you can follow us on Twitter at build play or visit our website, buildandplay.ca. Find us on Facebook where you can spread the holiday cheer by betting money and when Final Fantasy VII's remake is a real video game or a collective hallucination. 20 bucks says it's the latter. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel underscore Rosen. And me at Flarkon, that's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. Uh, how can people find everybody else? Tell us how to find you on the internet, one by one. Go, go, go. Find me on Twitter at John underscore or as well as at cbcnews.ca. Uh, you can just email me, kad67 at gmail.com. It's Al. You can just cry on your keyboard. That probably will work. Or yeah. you can tweet at Gollydra. Uh, for Alex Bethke, don't bother finding me. Find my game, Fate Tectonics, fatetectonics.com. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for me, you can find me at uh, eric at dorkshelf.com. All right, that's it for the year. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>